On this week's 51%, we kick off our series speaking to women religious leaders and celebrate the different ways that women worship. Sister Danielle Bonetti teaches the importance of worship through service. Jesus didn't send a program. He came himself and was among us. And so we feel that the best way to serve people is to be in relationship with them. And the women behind the Saratoga Springs United Methodist Church share their hopes for the future of the UMC. Coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh leader. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. For many of us, the topic of religion plays a considerable role in our lives. Whether you're born and raised in your beliefs, newly reformed, devout, agnostic, or even atheistic, our feelings on the afterlife have a way of guiding our life paths. But many of today's mainstream religions are at least traditionally male-led. So with the holiday season in full swing, consider this part one of a series speaking to women religious leaders about why they worship, how they worship, and the issues they care about most in their respective faiths. Because increasingly so, women are finding ways to take part and lead. Today we'll start in Latham, New York, at the Provincial House of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet, a Roman Catholic group of women religious that traces back to the mid-1600s in France. The Latham headquarters serves primarily as a home for retired sisters, but it also houses its administrative offices, including the office of Sister Danielle Benetti, the group's province coordinator of the Justice Ministry. The Sisters of St. Joseph were founded um, in 1650. At those days, in the 1600s, if a woman entered a religious life, there was only one form of religious life, and that was cloistered convents. And so they have to spend their whole time praying and just living behind a cloister. What Father Madai wanted to do was to have little cells of women dedicated to serving others, whom he called the dear neighbor. But there was a strong Jesuit influence and what they call Ignatian spirituality. So that attracted me a great deal because I've always been attracted to the Ignatian way of praying and imaging God. Benetti says the Roman Catholic faith was always a major part of her life. She went to join the Sisters of St. Joseph at just 18 years old, with hopes of serving in one of several ministries. The Sisters of St. Joseph notably started Albany's College of St. Rose in 1920 and played a role in the development of St. Mary's Hospital, now St. Mary's Healthcare, in Amsterdam. But I was always uh, wanting to do pastoral work to be out with people, so I was lucky. I got to do parish work, very beginnings of parish work, sisters being in parish work. So I was a religious ed director. I was always in the Albany Diocese, and uh, I was out in Oneonta for five years, and then in Troy. So I organized all the religious ed for the children who didn't go to Catholic school. And in those days, I mainly worked to train the lay people who were going to be the what we called catechist or the religion teacher. And Oneonta was kind of exciting. It was a very rural parish. We had a, in the city of Oneonta, we had the mother parish, and then we had these little missions. So every day, I was in a different little town, and I had a group of usually mothers who were at that time home during the day, and they would be the teachers, and the children were released from school, and we would walk them to. It was a rural area, so we would use whatever building we could. One time, we even we even had the classes. Oh, and I think of it, we were uh, we rented a 
Grange Hall, and we had the classes there. One time, we uh, there was an f- undertaker who let us use like the basement of his of his establishment, which was the best place to have class. But we did it, and the mothers. Being with the, the young mothers was wonderful because it was a chance to get to know them. And for many of them, it was their entree back into the workplace. Many of those women went on and stayed in that field, became religious ed directors themselves, youth ministers. So it was a chance to work with adults as well as the children. So uh, later on in the 80s, late 80s, I was like the assistant to the pastor, and I did hospital visiting. Um, I had time to visit the parishioners who were homebound. He would do the funeral, and I would do the wake service. It was um, what they called a pastoral associate role. What kind of work do you do now? I organize things to help the sisters grow in their understanding of justice issues which is a a tremendous commitment on our part as a community. We see ourselves as advocating for those on the margin of our society, doing legislative actions, pass uh, bills and laws that will lead to a more just society. I work with a group called Border Watch, Capital District Border Watch, and these are people very committed to work for immigrant rights, especially the people that are being detained at the border. So I just did a project yesterday with our senior sisters here where we made Christmas cards for the people that are now uh, being held in detention. And uh, I had translated phrases, uh, English phrases, into Spanish. So they, they wrote the phrases in Spanish to tell people that were thinking of them and praying for them. But then I also work with um, the Council of Churches, the Capital District Council of Churches, and also the New York State Council of Churches, where we'll visit with legislators to look at New York legislation. Now that we can get out more, I'm I'm starting to more meet with groups. I've tried to get in touch with um, what's happening with the Afghan refugees who are coming into the area. So I've visited some of the agencies and gotten to know them. What other leadership positions do you see women taking in the church? I think this is a a crucial time for the church right now. We've had some real soul-searching moments, which were very, and still are, very difficult And I think the church has the opportunity, uh, especially with Pope Francis, to reach out to women. And he is doing that, starting to include people in leadership, women in leadership roles at the Vatican. And here in this diocese, we had many sisters in leadership roles. When I worked for the diocese, we had almost every diocesan department was led by a woman, laywoman or a sister. And that was a wonderful time in the church. We're at a different time now. We don't have as many sisters. But uh, I think the church has the opportunity of using the gifts of women, lay women, married women, and integrating that into the very life of the church. I think women are studying theology, becoming very experienced in areas like teaching theology, spiritual direction, We have many sisters, including myself, who do spiritual direction. We help men and women talk about and getting in touch with how is God leading them in their life. So it sounds like the acts of service are almost like a way of worshiping. They are. They're very much uh, tied into the way we really envision God among us. You know, Emmanuel means God among us, and we have a rich 
rich tradition of spirituality of how we pray and how we approach God and how we reach out to others. We see that as all connected. You know, we don't say, all right, here you pray, here you serve others, here you study scripture. Uh, we're very strong about relationships. We really believe that our God is a God of relationship. Jesus didn't send a program. He came himself and was among us and formed relationships. And so we feel that the best way to serve people is to be in relationship with them. And we're enriched. You know, it's not a one-sided thing. I can't think of one experience in my life as a sister that hasn't enriched me as much as I've given. My favorite, very favorite uh, scripture story is the visitation where Mary when she realized she was pregnant, she heard the angel speak to her, and she heard that her cousin was pregnant, went out right away to visit her cousin and to be with her. You can just visualize she was an older woman, and here's this very young woman. Both of them were pregnant, and they were both there to help each other and to probably try to understand what was happening because both were kind of pregnancies that weren't expected. That's my very fair, because I think women have always done that for each other, and you want to encourage that. And, and that doesn't exclude men, because I think men are called to the same kind of reaching out to others. Rather than top-down, it's much more one-to-one -to, -one to each other. While Sister Danielle points out that there are many ways women lead within the Roman Catholic Church, the Church currently does not allow women to become priests. Our next guest, Kathleen Ryan, was ordained in 2015 by an organization that hopes to change that. The Association of Roman Catholic Women Priests says it is technically excommunicated by the Vatican, but it still sees itself as loyal members of the Church, and it has ministers in the U.S., Canada, Latin America, and elsewhere around the world. Ryan is one of multiple priests at the Upper Room, a non-hierarchical, inclusive Catholic community in Albany, New York. I wanted to be very active. I grew up, I was uh, baptized Roman Catholic, and I grew up in the Catholic Church. But from the very beginning, I always felt like an outsider. The men always were, and the boys, my brothers, um, were able to do things in the church that I wasn't able. So I always um, participated in every way I could. Um, as a young person, and then also as an adult, I was parish president. I, you know, I did all the things in the church that the church would allow women to do, um, but we were never really a full participant. And then in 2002, this movement began, and I didn't hear about it until 2013. And one of the bishops, her name is Bishop Bridget Mary Meehan, she was coming to Albany to do, um, and she called it a conversation with a woman bishop. I went to that to hear her speak. And when I got home, I said to my husband, we just found our church. This was so inclusive, including men. And it's a theology of blessing. Um, the Catholic church grew up with, we grew up with a th theology of original sin. And we no longer accept that any more than we accept that canon law says that women cannot be priests. So for you, what was the process of becoming a priest? 
there's a psychological police background check, you know, that kind of thing, but a lot of new theology, it's progressive theology, the kind of theology that you cannot get in the typical seminary nowadays. And so we've created through a program called People's Catholic Seminary, which is open to the public, a very progressive study of Christianity. We don't believe that everybody has to be baptized. I mean, it's nice. We do baptisms if you request it, but you're, um, you're baptized into the church, into a community to belong, but not to get that sin off your soul, so to speak. We're pro-immigrant. We are very socially justice-minded. Um, we're not for war, and yet we're a continuum. So if you talk to 200 priests, women priests, You'll probably get a little differences in our theology and how we're where we are on the continuum. But in general, we are an inclusive community that accepts anyone who is who feels they have the call and are willing to study. Do you see this becoming more of a thing for the future of the church? Well, we hope so. For a while, we were hoping that the Catholic Church, the Vatican, the Magisterium would see us and say, hey, Women should be part of us too. Well, it's not happening. If anything, many of our women priests have gotten letters of excommunication. They won't excommunicate a male priest who has abused, but they'll excommunicate me who decided I, need, I wanted to be a woman priest. So their level of why they excommunicate, they're saying it's traditional. They say that Jesus did not have women priests, but he didn't have priests for one, but he also did have many women who followed him and formed communities at his time, just like, you know, there was 12 disciples, but there was a lot of women who some are named, more are not named, because at the time, women were not named in writings. It was just uncommon. There's um, a woman who walked with Paul, her name is Thecla. She wor worked with Paul in um, getting the message out of Jesus. And Jesus' message always was, God loves you and you need to love everybody else. He didn't have all these canon laws. You know, he was Jewish and he obeyed the Jewish traditions, but he did it with great love. And that's what Paul was saying. His words got kind of turned sometimes, but Thecla was right with him. She herself became a bishop. During the persecutions, they tried to kill her in the Colosseums, you know, the, I don't know if it was the Roman one, but where she was living at the time, they tried to kill her. And um, the legend, it's a legend that she went into with the lions and the lions just laid down and, you know, they didn't kill her. So she is as famous as Paul was at the time, but the church kind of let that disappear. There's actually, there's writings called the book of Paul and Thecla. Well, they left out the Thecla. <laughs> Women have disappeared. Mary Magdalene is often considered to be a prostitute. Well, she wasn't. She was a follower of Jesus, and she was the first one to see Jesus resurrected. Um, he went to her first. Why? Because women were not important. Women were very important. Lastly, I just thought I'd ask whether you have a favorite biblical story or a message you'd like to share. Well, when you said my favorite biblical story, my favorite is the road to Emmaus, so it's after Jesus was crucified and he was, um, the word was that he was resurrected, but not everybody saw it. And a disciple of his, Cleopas, C-L-E-O-P-A-S, and his companion were walking to Emmaus. Well, the companion we suspect strongly 
was a woman and most likely his wife because women in those days would not walk alone. And the two of them were walking on the road to Emmaus and uh, talking about what they'd heard about Jesus being resurrected after the crucifixion and they were all upset. And Jesus appears to them, but they don't recognize him. Jesus actually, in my, uh, how I look at it, Jesus followed them and chased after them to catch up to them. And he explained to them what happened in Jerusalem, why the crucifixion, why it had to happen, and what it means for now. And they still didn't recognize him until he sat with them and had broke the bread. Cleopas and his wife ran back to Jerusalem, it's about seven miles away, to tell the disciples what they witnessed. And by that time, Jesus had been appearing in different places, including to the other disciples. What I love about it is, first of all, he chased after them to let them know what was really happening. He followed them. He pursued them. And I, I think God always pursues us. We're always on some path going in some direction and somehow God pursues us. Last guests today are the leaders of the Saratoga Springs United Methodist Church in Saratoga Springs, New York. The UMC is one of the largest Protestant churches in the U.S. behind the Southern Baptist Convention, but a long-held stalemate over its stance on same-sex marriage and LGBTQ clergy is prompting threats of a split by some of its more conservative churches. Pastor Heather Williams has been at the front of her congregation for the past eight years. Her associate pastor, Allison Clock, could be considered its next generation. She graduated from Drew Theological School this past spring, is working toward becoming ordained, and splits her time as a program director for a Christian summer camp at Sky Lake, a retreat center in Windsor, New York. The pair shared with me their love for their congregation, their views on women in the Bible, and their hopes for the future of the UMC. We'll start with Allison. I would say for me, it was definitely a process that began because I had so many mentors in my life Mm. who sort of ushered me forward in this process because I would say I was maybe 11 or 12 years old when I started to sense a call on my life to ordained ministry, but I didn't know how to identify that. But other people who had been through this process were able to identify that in me. And they said, how do you consider this? Maybe we'll get you signed up for this. And, you know, before I knew it, I was a 12-year-old girl who was, you know, reading scriptures on a Sunday and going to uh, summer programs where you learn about leadership in the church and all these sorts of opportunities just were thrown my way because people saw something in me. And to me in ministry over the last 20-ish years, at first, I just thought my pastor had a cool job, okay, <laughs> to be honest. I, I always wanted to do what he did, but now, after 20 years, my real passion has grown into mentoring and uplifting and nurturing women in leadership. Um, so tell me a little bit more about the community that you have at Saratoga Springs United Methodist Church. Yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, 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 we have this incredible group of generous and kind people. Mm-hmm. And yesterday, a member donated land for us to start a habitat build across from the high school in Saratoga Springs. So like a habitat for humanity type build? Yes. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. That's just the tip of the iceberg, though. Yeah. We're a reconciling congregation. 
And in the United Methodist Church, that means we are open and affirming of people from the LGBTQ community. That decision was made in 1995. Mm -hmm. And they embody the position of welcoming everyone. It is one of the healthiest churches I've ever seen. Mm, And they do welcome children and Mm -hmm. love them and make space for them to be them. We created a little kid nook in the back with rocking chairs for parents and soft Mm -hmm. toys for children to play in the sanctuary itself. This Sunday we had a baby cry. Yeah. And it just Mm -hmm. took everyone's breath away because it's been so long that we've heard a baby cry in the sanctuary because of COVID and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that touches on a good point because especially for young mothers or for women Mm -hmm. in general, like childcare is very important Mm -hmm. if you want people to be involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, You said that a big part of your passion now is inspiring leadership and working with women. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. I am currently working on my doctor of ministry degree at Drew University, uh, women in religious leadership. And now I think I'm more formally Mm -hmm. thinking that that is my call. How that will take shape, I'm not exactly sure. It's still a rough environment. That's, I guess that's where it's still an environment where people assume my husband is the pastor being appointed Mm -hmm. to the church. It's still a place where people touch you unwarranted. It's still a place where you feel your voice is not seen as... And Mm -hmm. and I think the political environment that we had for the last four years nurtured Mm -hmm. that type of ability to disempower, disengage, or push aside Mm -hmm. the voices of women. One of the things that I've been asking my guests is that either just like uh, with the Methodist Church or with the church in general, like what are you see as some of the biggest obstacles right now, but also some of maybe the biggest opportunities? Mm -hmm. I think for me... One of the obstacles is the rigidity around doing church differently. Mm. I read this book, Another Way, for my class in seminary, and it had this acronym CARE about leadership and creating safe place and hearing the voices, and that's one style of leadership that we won't embody because church growth looks like, and I'm just going to be real, looks Mm -hmm. like a young white man in skinny jeans and a large church and the numbers are growing and growing and growing. That's what's seen as valuable or successful leadership in the church. And women don't lead that way. Mm -hmm. Women lead in teams. Women lead in community. Women lead in relationship. We don't lead in a top-down way where numbers are the most important thing. But the greatest hope is our denomination is in the middle of Mm -hmm. upheaval. So my hope is Mm -hmm. that out of this upheaval will come a brand new thing that the spirit of the living God Mm -hmm. will will breathe into. Mm -hmm. That's my hope. Yeah, I was going to speak on that a little bit, too. Our denomination, as it stands now, is the product of several, several years of denominations coming together and splitting for different political, social reasons. So, yeah, where we are now is a product of that, and we are in the process of, you know, moving forward, too, and there's talks of splits, and that's very anxiety-provoking because when something splits, we don't know what will stand. But as mm. Heather said, confident that the Spirit will birth something beautiful out of this new creation, whatever it is. One of the things we are planning... We are having a 
old-fashioned tent revival. Resurgence, this is what holiness looks mm-hmm. like. May 6th, 6th and 7th yep. at our church, we're bringing in um, a renowned musician, mm-hmm. Mark Miller. And the point of our gathering is is to build hope. Yeah. To build hope and for people to see the voice of the denomination, the news, the things that you've been hearing, that's not who we all are. This is what holiness looks like. Mm-hmm. Being engaged in social justice and showing up. Yeah. And being present with one another no matter what. Mm-hmm. And we will not go back to a denomination that says you cannot recognize a full humanity of mm-hmm. all people and provide full pastoral yeah. care. We won't go back. Yeah. Our congregation refuses to adhere to that. Well, lastly, I guess I thought I'd ask to share either maybe your, like your either favorite message from the Bible or maybe your favorite story or favorite character. One of my favorite women in the Bible is actually the woman at the well. And the reason I like this story is because it's oftentimes a story that conservative folks will use to villainize women. It's a story where Jesus recognizes a woman who's living with a man who's not her husband, and she's been married several other times. Um, she goes out in the middle of the day to get water from the well, and Jesus is there, and he, he says, I know who you are, and he references that. So people will use that as a way to talk about, you know, Jesus is calling you away from your sinful life or, you know, what have you. But what I really like about that story is Jesus is sitting there. It's noon on a really hot summer's day. And he says, do you have water? And she offers him water. And I don't think people recognize the significance of that, that Jesus asks this woman for something that is life-saving, something that is is life-giving and that she is able to give this to him. She is the only one that's able to give this to him. So I think by people using this story as solely an opportunity to talk about um, sexual uh, morality, they're missing the point Mm. of the way that Jesus asks each of us, of all genders, of all walks of life, for our life-giving resources to offer to him to create something beautiful. Allison preached a beautiful sermon on Sunday about Mary and Elizabeth. In her sermon, she made me realize the need for my own life and my own heart to claim the uh, beauty, the light that God has planted in me. And you can do that. You can recognize that when you are in the presence of your Elizabeth. You're the second person who's brought up that story. Mm, really? I think it's cool. I was speaking with Sister Danielle, and she mentioned that that was one of her favorite stories, too, of just mm. how, you know, because Mary was so young, and she made the mm-hmm. trip to go and see her. Mm-hmm. And it being about a, a story of women supporting each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. she literally ran for the hills, yeah. is what the scripture says. So yeah. that was to go uh-huh. see Elizabeth. Mary, Mary left. But, yeah, there are so many other stories of women in the scripture, some of them fraught with racism and classism Mm -hmm. and the ability to, we see too many times the Mm -hmm. ability of one woman because of their status to be able to subjugate or abuse or mistreat another woman Mm -hmm. um, because of their status. Yes. And so I guess that's why it's so important to me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. 
That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's hosted by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartoff. And that theme underneath me right now, that's Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to all the women who took part in this episode. Sister Danielle Bonetti, Kathleen Ryan, Pastor Heather Williams, and Associate Pastor Allison Clark. If you'd like to learn more about our guests or the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. We'll continue our celebration of women religious leaders next week. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. Nightmare down the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool No electricity Hot rain on the concrete Sweet melting little girl dreams They said, oh, I want a big life Not a house that could have been like Where are you taking me? Where are you taking me? Sit